What great singing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That you this morning? Know your heart before the Lord, prone to wander. We're thankful that God is always there caring for us. Let's just take a moment as we begin our time this morning to ask Him to attend to our worship as we study His Word. Father, we are once again grateful that we can be here together, that we can be here in person together, that even those who may not be with us can listen in. We pray that our time of worship in Your Word would be profitable to Your glory and to our good. We're thankful for what Your Word tells us and what it teaches us and how we grow thereby by it. Use it in our lives as we listen to what it says to us this morning as press upon our hearts all that we need to put into practice so that you are glorified in and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want us to take our Bibles again this morning and open them to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, as we continue our study of John the Baptist, who is the last of the Old Testament prophets. We are focusing our attention once again in verses 1 to 20, which you may not know this just by way of your own Bible trivia. This is the largest section within the Gospels concerning John. Uh, Luke also says in chapter 7 and verse 28 concerning John, I say to you, quoting the words of Jesus, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. No one greater than John, yet it says, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That is a monumental statement. When it comes to the earthly prophets, Of God, there is no one greater in a physical sense. There's no one who came before John and no one who came after John, born in and of mankind, that is greater than John. And yet, in the kingdom to come, the kingdom of God, even the least is greater than John. In the spiritual sense and in the kingdom of God in which those who believe upon Jesus Christ belong, even we are greater than John. That is simply to say that John is a large part of the redemptive plan of God. As God is unfolding His redemptive plan upon the history of humanity, and John is involved in that, he is a large Part of that, and since we need to know the exact truth about all that we have been taught and all that we have heard concerning Jesus Christ, as Luke writes to his friend Theophilus back in chapter 1, then you and I, along with Theophilus, need to know the ministry of John. And of course, Luke, being that faithful theologian, faithful companion of the Apostle Paul in his ministry journeys, faithful to God, faithful as a historian, he is faithful to give us his record of John's ministry. 
And it all boils down to the fact that he is a true prophet of God. You say, why Why so? Why does it all boil down to that? Because it says here in John chapter 3, or in Luke chapter 3, that the word of God came to him in verse 2. That's a requirement of a prophet. At least a prophet with a large P, a capital P, as that one who has received the revelation of God by direct revelation from God. The word of God came to John And then the outworking of that, you notice in verse 3, is that he came into all the region of Judea to proclaim the word of God. This is what all prophets do. Big P or little p prophets, those who are teachers and preachers and pastors, true pastors of the word of God, are little p prophets. We just simply tell people what God said. That's what a large prophet did, a large P prophet, if you will. They they just told the people what God said. Here's what God did. That's what we do. That's what we are to do, actually, as Christians. We just go about telling people what God said. We're not necessarily all concerned with what that might do to somebody else by way of relationship. We certainly want them to know God. We want them to have a relationship with God themselves, and yet by way of that, we know that the Word of God offends people. The Word of God comes to people and and in many ways is a cold cup of water on their face. It shocks them. It's it's a, a slap upon their cheek. John is a prophet of God. And last Lord's Day, as we were looking at this, we, were, we looked at the revelation of God and the proclamation of what John was told. John was given the word of God, verse 2. John was going out to preach or to proclaim the word of God. And according to God's divine providence in John's life, John begins his ministry in the darkest days of the nation of Israel and the world. I told us last time these were dark days because the Romans were ruling. They were the ruling authority in the world, and their rule was dictatorial. It was autocratic. It cared little about others, particularly it cared very little about the Jewish people. It cared only if they could use them to advance some kind of political power for the Roman rulers or in some way use them to get advantage. And so their oppression and manipulation was happening at every turn, including within the religious system of Israel. Israel had, of course, long since turned their collective backs on God. Even though they claimed to know God, they were rejecting God. They had really created a system of religion that went far beyond anything that God had told them to do. They turned it into a system that suited their own desires and suited their own ways of meeting some system by where by way they could consider themselves righteous. But they had turned their backs on the true and living God, and He had been set aside in their hearts, even though they said they worshipped Him. But the reality was that their God was a God of their own making. Their God was just like them. 
And so the Romans used that religious system as a political pawn. The Romans appointed high priests that would do their bidding. And so Luke tells us that during that time when John begins his ministry, he the Romans used that system by deposing the, the real high priest and appointing several other high priests that were in that position by name only, but were not the appointed high priests under God's kingdom. You notice in verse 2, it says it was in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was the true high priest. He had been deposed by the Romans in the past, but he as well was corrupt. He had turned his back on God. He loved power, and he, even though he was was removed, he worked in such a way that his son-in-law, Caiaphas, would be appointed as the political high priest, thereby having his own desires appeased and appeasing the desires of the Roman government. So he, Annas and Caiaphas, were both corrupt. Neither were God-fearing men. Neither were those who would lead God's people to God in the truest sense. They even mocked up a trial against Jesus Christ in just a few years' time after John's ministry. So it's a dark time. And John, as the Gospel of John tells us, John comes as a light in order to proclaim the light. And his message is a message in verse 3 of repentance and forgiveness. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now just those few words encapsulate for us the entire gospel. Encapsulate for us all that we need. Repentance and forgiveness is our need. This is what all of humanity needs. They do not need another way to gain some kind of self-appointed morality by which they can measure themselves against everybody else and claim that they are righteous or that they are good or that they are acceptable before God. No, every man needs repentance and forgiveness. Those words tell us that we are desperate for rescue. We are lost. They tell us how we are to see sin the reality that we are flooded through and through in ourselves with sin. Repentance and forgiveness tell us of God's mercy. They tell us that mercy is in fact available for us even though we do not deserve it. That there is a way that our condition can be remedied. That there's a way in which our condition and the guilt of our condition can be removed It tells us of our need for faith. The need that we must trust in what God has declared about us and about His Son. Tells us that this is not John's message. This is God's message. John is just speaking the Word of God that he received. This is God's message to men. Men need repentance and forgiveness. This is God's Word. This is God's good news. This for us is the Gospel. This is, as verse 6 declares, the salvation of God. 
That brings us then to the text for our time this morning, which covers two more aspects of John's ministry. We saw the revelation and the proclamation. This morning, I want us to look at the provocation and the stimulation. Revelation was in verse 2, proclamation was in verse 3, and through verse 6, actually, as it's foretold by Isaiah, that he would come and preach these things, making ready the way of the Lord. And this morning, I want us to see the provocation and the stimulation. I'm outlining it that way because it's helping me, at least in my own understanding, keep a clear walking picture of what is going on in the ministry and preaching of John. And if we go all the way down through verse 22, there is also going, we're going to see the anticipation, the humiliation, and the exaltation. We'll save all those for next time. So for our time this morning, the Provocation and the stimulation, verses 7 to 14. Notice, beginning in verse 7, Luke tells us, He therefore, that is John, began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And also the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none, and let him who has food do likewise. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Well, just upon reading that, it is patently clear, at least it ought to be patently clear to all of us, that John is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about who would come before the Messiah in order to prepare the hearts of the people. Uh, That is simply to say that people need the soil of their hearts stirred up about its true condition in order that it might be receptive to the truth of the gospel. And the irony is that it is not us who are the seed spreaders who do the stirring, it is the message itself that stirs the heart. God's the one who prepares, and God is the one who plants. Man does not believe that he is as bad off as God says he is. Man believes that he's actually pretty good. And if we were to evaluate it by the standards of men, that is true. 
man can evaluate himself based upon the standards of other people and thereby come to the conclusion that, hey, you know, compared to everybody else, I'm pretty good. I'm okay. In fact, I always see myself in that light when I evaluate myself according to that standard. But when we are measured against the only standard that matters, which is God Himself, then we are an utter and complete destitution. We are failures. We are totally disqualified from living in the presence of God. And John, therefore, is spreading the seeds of the gospel to the people. And you notice that at least in the words that Luke records for us here, it begins with bad news. It begins with bad news. John begins his preaching, and he begins in a way that very often, especially for us here in the Western church, is really foreign to our ears begins in a provocative way. Notice the text says that the multitudes were going out to him in the wilderness, and he was saying to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Luke says that multitudes, multitudes were going out. If, if we were to turn quickly over to Matthew's Gospel, we're not going to do that. I'll just let you know about it. You can look at it at your, in your own time. But if we were going to turn over to Matthew's Gospel, what is recorded for us there about John the Baptist is not as much information as Luke gives us, but Matthew tells us that he was saying this when a lot of Sadducees and Pharisees were going out to him. So when Luke says the multitudes were going out, we cannot forget that these multitudes that are going out, this horde of people that are going out into the wilderness to see John, are filled with the leadership of the religious organization in Jerusalem and in Israel. Religious leaders are going out. And the people, no doubt, would have followed these religious leaders as they made their way out to John And they're coming to be baptized by him, Luke tells us. The religious leaders, and even for many of the people, even as they say saw John as a prophet of God, they would have desired to be baptized by John as an act of religious work. They were coming not in order to confess their sins, these were the religious rulers of the day. They, they would not go to confess sins like we heard this morning even in our adult Sunday school class. Out of James, we, we were reminded of what it says in Luke about the Pharisee and the publican before in the temple praying. And the Pharisee says, I'm so thankful I'm not like other men. I, I, I give, I, I, I tithe all that I should. I, I'm not like this tax gatherer who's here. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them. They weren't there to confess sin. This whole baptism for them was just this outward, just another religious act, a way to look spiritual in their own eyes, especially in the eyes of others. And so John's words are a challenge 
that that kind of thinking, it's a provocation, if you will. It comes with a dire warning. Notice what he says, who who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 9, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These are, this is a dire warning. This is, this is a warning that the great and final judgment is coming. Listen, don't think you're okay. The judgment of God is coming. None of us are safe. No man without Jesus Christ is safe. Now, none of us are prophets in the same way, in the same sense that John was a prophet of God, whom God revealed the Word of God to. But we as Christians, like I said earlier, are in fact little p prophets in the sense that we have the privilege, we have the responsibility. In fact, we have the command given to us in Matthew 28 to proclaim the truth of the gospel to the lost. We are to be proclaimers of the truth, and therefore we must not leave off the fact with people when we speak about Jesus Christ, when we speak about all that God has done for us, we must not leave off the fact that they are lost and that they face the coming judgment if they will not repent. There is no true protection in one's own morality. There is no true protection from the law of God by way of our own righteous deeds. A lifetime of good deeds will never be enough. And so John says to these people that are coming out to be baptized, you're not ready for baptism. You're not ready for baptism. Outward conformity is meaningless without inward change. That's what John is saying. And inward change is always accompanied by the bearing of fruit born from that change. Beloved, we we cannot miss the provocation without being brought to our knees of the reality of what is being said. This message would have been like striking them in the face with an open hand. Here are proud religious people. Here are people coming out to claim this moment for themselves so that they are not dismayed in the eyes of others. And John boldly and resolutely calls them poisonous snakes. How loving. We speak so highly of John the Baptist, and yet in today's day and age, in the evangelical church of today, this message would be torn apart and said, John was not a very loving guy. He literally is calling them offspring of vipers. That's the the literal sense of this. You are the offspring of 
of vipers. It's an expression, an expression that really exposes everything about them and their very character. They are poisonous. They are the offspring of that which kills. So he's not just calling them snakes. He's saying, you are in a long line of snakes. It's not that just you are a snake, somehow you you became a snake. No, he's saying you come from a heritage of snakes and you continue the heritage. Yet another pointing to the very depraved nature of humanity. You are the offspring of snakes. In other words, there were others that preceded you, and instead of being warned by your predecessors who have gone before you, and thereby you go another way, you turn from that kind of living, you turn from that way of life. No, you have simply joined in the sin of your fathers. That's what he's saying. You're no different. John, how could you be so harsh? How could you be so harsh? Well, Jesus says the same thing, just a different way. John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said it this way, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Why? Because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks lies, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders when he said that. Such a kind message. Jesus says, listen, Satan was the original. He was the serpent that deceived Eve in the garden. And so too, you are the same. The religious leaders were doing his bidding. They were living just like he was living. They were deadly hypocrites. They were leading others to eternal death by their actions, by their own deception, by their own words. John has been sent, remember, to make every ravine a filled up place. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. Every crooked thing shall be set straight. Every rough road shall be smooth. Here's John preaching with the sharpened asp of God's tools. And he is leveling it out. He's not mincing words. It's so direct it almost takes our breath away. I remember years ago when I was speaking to a man about his marriage. His marriage was collapsing before his eyes, though he refused to acknowledge it. And I I wanted him to realize, I wanted him to see the reality and the severity of what was going on in his own marriage. And so I said to him, listen, friend, you have a fire in the house of your marriage. It is in the basement. It is smoking. The smoke is rising and it is on the verge of consuming the entire edifice of this thing called marriage between you and your wife. And you refuse to see it. You want to continue it as if it's not there. Man never changed his heart, never repented, his marriage was destroyed, 
His wife left him. The house of his marriage burnt to the ground. This is the religious leaders of the day. This is many who have followed them. And so the question is asked, who warned you to come? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? It's a fair question. It's a fair question, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Think about the context. Think about what's going on. Think about who has come. It's a fair question. After all, if you are counting on your own religious and moral attainment to gain your righteousness, to justify you, then why would you need to run from the wrath to come? If you think that you're not a sinner, if you think that you're okay before God, then why would you ever come to get baptized by me, John says? Why would you flee? Who warned you to flee? If you're coming out here, surely somebody must have warned you. And if someone warned you, they did it in some kind of underhanded way. They did it to deceive you so that you might believe that in one more religious activity, you would have enough to be satisfied before God. If you came, you must have been warned. So who was it? Who was it? That's interesting because the grammar used here clearly implies that it was the father of lies who warned them. Satan himself, in some way, they are believing that through this baptism, they are fleeing a coming wrath when in fact, without repentance, John says, they are only running toward the wrath to come. We have to understand what lies in this question, beloved. First is the fact that nobody can escape by some kind of insincere outward use of one of God's means of grace. Baptism is a means of grace. Not a means by which we are infused with the grace of God through our belief. We, are, we stand in grace, the Bible tells us. We believe upon Jesus Christ. It is all of grace. And so it isn't a means by which we gain more grace, but it is a means of grace by which God's grace is shown to others through the proclamation of the gospel in the life of this one soul who's baptized and thereby their living out of that reality through their continued repentance, the fruit of that repentance in their lives. This is what baptism is. It's a means of grace. But it means nothing simply as an outward act. So that's the first thing. But secondly, the only real way to escape is sincere repentance. And the beauty of that reality is that sincere repentance is still open for all who would believe. If they will measure themselves next to God and not next to their fellow man, and then the outflow of genuine repentance will be the honest use of God's means of grace, which is baptism. 
You see, one of the first realities of a truly repentant heart is the desire to obey God in what God commands to be obeyed. And one of the things God commands to be obeyed is to be baptized. Not in order to have grace infused to you, like some of the false religions try to say and the cult of Catholicism would say, but as a means of God's grace, to show God's grace. So we cannot be deceived John is saying, against the false way is the only true way. What is that? Verse 8, therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. See, here's the true way. The true way isn't through some activity, and particularly in this case, baptism. That's not the true way in order to to be flooded with God's grace, in order to receive salvation, in order to have forgiveness of sins. That's not the true way. The true way is through genuine repentance. That goes right to the heart of the problem, doesn't it? True repentance bears fruit. True repentance bears fruit. In other words, it bears fruit in the character of a person, and then that character of that person shows in how they live. It shows in their action. I turn over just for a second to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, because every... I highlighted the words of Jesus Christ preaching the similar message of John before, and I want to show you that Jesus says the similar thing here in Matthew chapter 7 when it comes to repentance. Notice verse 16. Well, we can start in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. That means there are many on the road to destruction. There are many on the broad way. But you need to enter by the narrow way because the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. So beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, how am I going to be able to tell? How am I going to be able to know? How am I going to be able to discern even in my own self the reality of the genuineness of whether I'm on the narrow way or the wide way? Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. In other words, this is the criterion for a true repentant believer. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes. Figs are not gathered from thistles. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. In other words, it is the practice of the reality of repentance in our life. It's the fruit of repentance being shown. It is the practice of a profession. Every tree, verse 19, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And then one of the most frightening verses of all 
Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, even sheep, false sheep, in wolves, wolves in sheep's clothing, as he said in verse 15, false prophets declare they know the Lord, Lord, Lord. We know you, we know you. But he who does the will of my Father, that's who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, what day? That day of judgment that's coming, that day that John is professing, that day of the wrath to come. Many will say to me on that day, but Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We went out and and spoke of you. And, And in your name, we even... We even told demons to leave. And seemingly, demons even left. And in your name, we performed miracles. Miraculous things were happening. And, and oh, don't we know you? I mean, we did these things and they were happening. Surely we knew you. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. You claim to know me. I never knew you. That See, that's the important reality, isn't it? A lot of people say, I know God. The important question is, does God know you? Does God know you? Because, because true repentance, forgiveness of sins bears fruit. Bears fruit in the character of a person and therefore in the life of a person. Depart from me, he says, you who practice lawlessness. That's the character of a life. You see, first character, that's our nature, that's our internal fruit, the character of us, then outward action, the visible fruit. The juices from remaining in the vine, John 15. Remaining in Christ. Many of the people, especially the religious leaders, were depending upon outward realities. What I do outwardly, that's what, that's what declares me righteous. That's what they said. My ethnic heritage, that's what declares me righteous. That's what shows me to be a, a person of God. My privilege. I have Abraham as my father. They thought that since they grew up as a Jew, they thought that because they were part of the physical family of, of Israel, that they would then receive and enjoy all of the promises that God made to Abraham. You see, they were resting on the faith of Abraham as their security. God, God would never go against His promise He made to Abraham, and God said He would bless His descendants, and, and I'm one of His physical descendants, therefore God needs me. I'm all set. John says, really? Really? You think you're safe? You think you're safe? First of all, I thought you said you were safe before, so who warned you to come? You must have been deceived by someone to come into saying to you, you're not there yet, you need one more activity, this baptism must be that activity, so you're not out here because you're, you're, you're genuine about your own sinfulness before God. You're here just in order to get another notch on your belt, to add another righteous deed to your pile of filthy rags. You're, you, you think you're safe? 
If you think, if you think that by your activities you're saved, then you know nothing of God. You know nothing of God because God is able from these very stones to raise up children to Abraham. You see, beloved, we, we read passages like this. We open our Bibles. We look at these kinds of things and we think, man, these people really had it wrong, didn't they? They were, they were the people of God. They were the nation of Israel. They really had it wrong. And yet we forget and we, we refuse to see or maybe we just don't want to look at it or maybe we're ignorant to the fact that what they believe, many believe today. It's just by another name. I call it proximity Christianity. Proximity Christianity. Maybe, maybe you've never heard that term. In other words, if I'm close to what is called Christian, then I'm secure before God. If I get close to Christian people, if I get close to Christian things, or at least what's labeled as Christian things, if, if that's been my heritage, maybe, maybe like many of you young people who are here, you grow up in a home that's Christian, a Christian home. Maybe you went to a Christian school. Maybe you lived in even a nation that was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles. And so in some way, in your mind, you're a Christian. You're proximity Christian. You like Christian people. You have a Bible in your house. You might even carry your Bible. You might even have it in your car with you. You might even attend a church. You might even read the books on the top 10 seller book list in a Christian bookstore because they're Christian books. You were born into a Christian family. My heritage is Christian. I'm all set. I'm good. Not true. Don't be deceived. John's talking to people who were proximity Christians. Proximity Christianity All it will do for you is bring greater judgment upon you. And so John turns up the heat a little bit on his message. Verse 9, And also, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. All of Jesus in Matthew 7, right? One bears fruit, one doesn't. Bad fruit, good fruit. The axe is already laid at the trees. And every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit, it's cut down, it's thrown into the fire. Here's how one commentator put it, quote, The gleaming blade of a sharpened axe lies on the ground beside the root of those whose lives have no good fruit. And the judgment that is about to fall is anything but superficial. The judgment that is about to fall means radical severance and destruction, unquote. He said it right. This is a severe warning. It's a provocation. This is to stir their hearts, to get them thinking about themselves before a holy God because their sense of holiness is misguided. 
John is saying, listen, if you only have a facade of belief, if there is no genuine repentance in you whereby there is fruit as the outworking of your life, we're not talking perfection here. We're talking the direction of obedience to God. John says, you better be warned then. You better be warned. It's easy to fool friends. It's easy to fool family. It's easy to even a church and to stand in the baptism waters and profess to know God and then go your way. There's one thing for sure. No one fools God. No one fools God. John's message hit home. It hit the target in the hearts of some at least. Like those who heard Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, they were, they were frightened as they heard Jonathan Edwards say, we are like, like being held over the flaming fire, held only by the thread of a, of a spider web's uh, threading. It's about to consume us. We are in the hands of an angry God, and some realize their need. And so they're being convicted in their hearts. So verse 10 says, And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? What shall we do? Well, from provocation, we see the stimulation. They've been provoked. With the kind words of John here by God, take him a message. Take him a message from me, John. This is what I raised you up for. You're unlike anybody else who has come before, anybody else who will come behind. You have lived a different life. You have lived a different way. You have lived in the outskirts of town. You have not been part of them, and they are going to flock to you, and they are going to hear what you have to say, and this is your message. Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And they need to know the truth. They need to know who they really are. They need to know they're, they're just like their father, the liar, the devil. They're just like that. They're lost in their sins. They need to be warned. So let them know that the action by way they're trying to get baptized means nothing. That they need to show fruit of repentance in their life. And that is wrought only by faith in Jesus Christ. And so some were coming. Some were saying, what shall we do? And the answer is not necessarily what we think it might be. It's not necessarily what we think it might be. And while I thought we'd get farther this morning because of time, I'll just introduce it and then we'll pick it up next time. They were asking, what shall we do? John says, let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. Let him who has no food do likewise. Collect no more than what you have been ordered to collect. Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, but be content with your wages. 
You would think that John would say, at least in the Western mindset as we've heard it today by so many within evangelicalism, you would think that John might say, listen, go do some social work. Go do some social work and think about social justice and those kinds of things. Go do something with the poor and join a local church. Maybe even pray and study your Bible. We might think that John would say those things. Those are good things. Listen, you want to show fruit of repentance and spend time in prayer. Spend time reading your Bible. Spend time reading the Old Testament Scriptures. John doesn't say any of that. He didn't say any of that. What he talks about all fall into the area of your own personal ethics. How you live day by day in the world around you. Beloved, that simply tells us on on, on a, a large scale sense that our Christianity is not simply church. that our Christianity is every day of life. Every day of life. Everything that John talks about here, everything he mentions falls into the category of love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to show fruit of repentance? Then let it be the outworking of your life in reference to your fellow men. That's the essence of the two greatest commandments, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. One is vertical. Love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength. One is horizontal. Love your neighbor as yourself. A fruit of true repentance born by God in the heart is outworking in the lives of those around you. If you love God, then it will show in the fruit of your life in how you respond and live with those around you. Notice John gives instruction to three groups here. Three groups of people. Private citizens, number one, the multitudes were coming out saying, what shall we do? And he answers them, verse 11. That's private citizens. Those who aren't of the other two groups, which aren't private citizens, notice he gives it to those who are tax gatherers, workers, those who are the public enemies of the Jews. They usually were Romans or traitor Jews who were working for the Roman government in order to exact the taxes from the people. And then, of course, the military. Soldiers were questioning him. You know who that was? Romans. Romans. They were soldiers. That's not Jews. That's that's Gentile Romans. They're coming out. So there's all of this kind of humanity represented here. There's there's just the the general multitude, private citizen out there in and about life. There's the, the, the workers of the government. Tax gatherers, those who are, who are in, hated by others. And there's even the military, those of the government over them. And he's made it clear to the religious that outward works are of no effect. 
And now others are asking for specifics. Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. Collect no more than you're ordered to collect. Be satisfied with what you have. Don't take anything by force. Don't use your own power for your own self. It's interesting, isn't it? That all that John talks about, that all that John mentions here, all revolves around money and possessions. Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. Let him who has food do likewise share with him who has none. As a tax gatherer, it's all about money. Don't take more than you're supposed to. So the soldiers, be content with what you have. Don't take it by force. It's all money and possessions. It's all about what I can get from somebody else. This is the gospel. This is John's message. And it all comes on the heel of the reality that there's judgment coming. Judgment coming. Listen, don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait the next hour. Don't wait the next minute. Listen, repentance is for today. Today is the day of salvation, Paul said to the Roman or to the believers he was writing to in Romans chapter one. Today is the day. Don't harden your hearts like like before. Today is the day. He's going to return to this reality. He's not finished with the the judgment motif here because people are coming and people are coming with expectation and people are wondering who John is. Is he the Messiah? And John tells them, I'm not. I, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming who's mightier than I. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Listen, when you believe upon Jesus Christ, you get baptized with the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in you. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, there's only one thing coming, judgment. That's fire. In fact, falls in verse 17, an unquenchable fire. Is that the gospel, Pastor? Well, Luke tells us that's what he was preaching. Verse 18, with many other exhortations, also he preached the gospel to the people. The gospel begins with the bad news. Bad news, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven on your own works, your own efforts. The good news is that he sent his son. At the end of verse 22, heaven speaks. Jesus is there. Jesus is baptized to fulfill the whole law and heaven speaks. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Beloved, without repentance, there is no salvation. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful again for your word. We know that 
you are the supreme one in heaven and on earth, that all all of your created being is in your power, that you are the one who have created the physical world and you have created the spiritual world. We know that by the power of your spirit, we have understanding of your truth, that your providence guides all of our life. But we also know, Lord, that we are sinners in your sight. That we have been rightly judged by you and the verdict is guilty. And if we deny that, we make you a liar. But in Christ, you reconciled rebellious sinners like us. And you actually listened to our faith. You granted us the eye to see who you are and even the hand of faith to receive you that we might honor you and receive eternal life. So it is you. You are the one who invites. You are the one who calls out to us. You are the one that instructs us. You are the one that teaches us to live. You are the one who is known through your Son, Jesus Christ. So we would ask you this morning that our minds would be filled with your perfections. That your love to us in Christ would be in our hearts firm and changeless. That nothing would challenge it and that we would rest in the reality of knowing that we cannot be separated from it. That that joy would flood our hearts and that nothing, nothing this world has to offer would cause us to be miserable in any kind of way. And so preserve us. Like the song said, we are prone to wander and we know it. Preserve us from that wandering. From the formalities of religion. Let us never forget your patience and your wisdom. Your power. Your faithfulness and your care. Never let us cease from responding to your invitations to us. We'll thank you for all eternity through our Savior, Jesus Christ. In him we pray. Amen.